Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Monday, November the 13th, 2023. Last year, I uh, had the privilege, the honor of having Daniel Silver, one of uh, the world's leading, most revered and, and popular, successful spy writers, thriller writers on the show, uh, talking about how to write a best-selling literary spy novel every year. He had a new book out back then. I've probably got another one by now. Portrait of an Unknown Woman, which might, in a sense, be a metaphor for the spy genre. Lots of unknown women. It's all about knowing the male. But as with all genres, this thing is being turned on its head. We've done lots of shows about the way in which women are rewriting literary and literal history. We did one with Lena, uh, Lena Andrews, um, uh, who's written a book called Valiant Women, which is restoring the voice and role of women in uh, American in, in the Second World War, in the, in, in the American uh, War in Europe and uh, in Asia. And we also did a show recently with Sandra Newman, who's rewriting 1984, Orwell's very male-centered dystopia, replacing Winston Smith with Julia as the hero. She has a major new book out. It's quite literally a rewriting of 1984 called Julia. So why not do it with Daniel Silver's genre? And that is indeed what is or has been done with um, my guest today, Anna Petoniak. Um, uh, this is her fourth book. It's The Helsinki Affair, a novel, and it replaces the typical male spy at the heart of the story with a female one. And am I, uh, Anna, am I uh, trivializing this or is there an attempt to rewrite the genre in, in your new book? It's out tomorrow. Uh, no, I don't think you're trivializing it at all, Andrew. And I'm so happy that you're framing the conversation this way, because I do think that as you're aware, as probably many of your viewers and listeners are aware, spy fiction is a very male dominated genre, both in terms of the authors who write these novels and in terms of the characters who populate these narratives. And this is a thing that always struck me as a fan and a reader of spy fiction. I love so much about spy fiction, but I do think that we are missing out on an entire dimension and swath of the human experience being captured in these stories if the women aren't able to take center stage and really exist as multi-dimensional characters who aren't necessarily just a love interest or um, a sort of junior partner to the men who are the the core of the story so i I'm very excited about this idea of just pushing a little bit more um, into this space, pushing women into the center of this space. And um, spies, of course, the the tradecraft of spies is lying. Your mm -hmm. substack uh, is called the responsible liar. Uh, again, I don't want to cast gendered insults here, um, Anna, but women tend to be pretty good liars, certainly as good, if not perhaps better than men. Why, why, why haven't women been more central in, in the espionage business? Is it the classic 
story of just old men and men dominating the institutions around these uh, around this business? It's a great question. And I think that's exactly right. I think women, and again, this is a broad generalization. And I recognize that often there are exceptions to this rule. Well, you're allowed to, this, this is a show for broad generalization. Broad generalization. I, I encourage Here it comes. So in my lived experience, I do think that women are very emotionally perceptive and emotionally attuned to other people. They tend to ask lots of personal questions and be curious about your life. And I think that degree of emotional attunement can come in very handy when you're a spy and you are trying to recruit an agent or you're trying to sort of subtly manipulate some of the levers of power behind the scenes. You know how to read people and you know how to react to people. And of course, the, that can be manifested as you know lying to them or deceiving them. It can also be manifested as you know, comforting them when you perceive they need that, um, or forming a real, you know, deep emotional attachment to your agents in the field. So I do think women are very skilled at that kind of thing. Certainly lots of men are too, but again, in my experience and in some of the reading and research I did for this book, it does seem that women are often very, very good at that dimension of spying and tradecraft. As for the question as to why it's been such a long time uh, that men have dominated this business, this um, this practice in the real world, and also the genre, I think it's like many things, which is that up until fairly recently, um, men were the ones who you know did the work and went out in the world, and women were the ones who stayed at home and you know tended to the family. And there wasn't necessarily a lot of opportunity for women to break those gender norms. But luckily and thankfully, in recent decades and in the last century, that really started to change. And so I think it just takes time for society and the world to catch up with those shifting ideas around what women are really capable of. You've had two careers, one as a writer, and then you were for a while, for actually quite a long time. You were a senior editor at a New York house. You wrote a piece for Lit Hub a few years ago about what being an editor taught me about writing. Did you ever edit spy novels? And do you think you can learn this? And, you know, we call it craft or trade craft. Is this something that can be learned or is it comes naturally to certain types of people, the Daniel Silvers and John le Carres of the world. Mm -hmm. So I did edit spy fiction in my time at Random House. And in many ways, that was my on-ramp into really falling in love with this genre. So I worked for a very senior editor at Random House who was Alan First's longtime editor. Oh, yeah. First is good. What do you think of him? I adored First. I adored his writing. I also adored and still adore him on a personal level. He's a really wonderful person. But what was so exciting and surprising to me is that when I was working at Random House and I was in my early 20s, I was still figuring out what kind of books I really loved to read. Uh, not just in terms of the books that had been assigned to me in school, um, in college where I studied English, but what, what did I want to read for pleasure? what were my preferences and working in publishing was a great way to start to understand that about myself what kinds of books really lit me up and i remember when my boss asked me to take a look at alan's new novel he just delivered the manuscript of it and 
He writes it the old-fashioned way on an old typewriter, and so he'll deliver an actual- As one would expect. Yes, it's so fabulous and really inspiring, honestly. So I started reading Alan's novel, and I just loved it. And I think until that point, maybe I'd had this idea that spy fiction was all macho, all action scenes, car chases, you know, that kind of thing. But I discovered in Alan's novels that there was a great deal of subtlety to it and emotional intelligence and just beautiful writing. I mean, the way he can capture a mood or an atmosphere is is gorgeous. So I rather voraciously started reading all of Alan's books. And from there, it kind of beckoned me into the genre. I began to read John Le Carre, began to read Graham Greene. And I always found that I gravitated towards those um, types of spy fiction authors who maybe have a little bit more of a slow burn quality and really spend time building characters and you know going deep into the moral murkiness of it. As for the question as to whether one can learn the craft of writing spy fiction, I think I think you can. I think you need to maybe have a natural predisposition towards it in some regard, which is sort of true with any genre of writing. It's um, it's going to be hard if you don't have some seed of talent or a kind of natural impulse towards a certain kind of story. But it does, it, that the practice gets rewarded by a lot of work and developing of your craft and reading the masters in the genre. We are speaking with Anna Petoniak, the author of a, a new literary spy novel. I hope uh, you, you'll be okay with that, Anna. Uh, Absolutely. The Affair. You mentioned Le Carre. It's hard to uh, talk about spy novels without mentioning him. We've talked about First. We've talked about Daniel Silver. And in fact, the uh, the promotion for your, your book says it's perfect for fans of John Le Carre. I'm a, a huge Le Carre fan. I'm not sure, um, Anna, if you saw the pigeon tunnel the the new film by uh, I did. Errol, yes i did errol morris which is sort of classic le carré or sort of errol morris trying to be uh, uh le carré in in discussing um le carré's life one of the astonishing things in that conversation i guess um particularly thinking about what you've done here is that the absence of women. His father mm -hmm. dominates his life. Mm -hmm. His mother disappears. There have never really been very strong female characters in, in, in Le Carre, do you think? Uh, I mean, yeah. when we, um, as I said, when we, uh, when we ran the, um, uh, when we ran the uh, Daniel Silver piece, we had a photo on Literary Hub of uh, Richard Burton, uh, from the spy who came in from the cold, which again, we don't remember the girl, but we certainly remember Richard Burton. So mm -hmm. is he the, the, the quintessential male writer, Le Carre? Le Carre, I would say certainly his books are very dominated by men and male characters. I don't know if I would go so far as to call him the quintessential male writer, because I do think to, to give Le Carre some credit, he, perhaps goes beyond what we might think of as the really cliched male outlook, which is, and again, here comes a broad generalization, 
men maybe tend to be more interested in the action, the, um, the sort of adrenaline pumping scenes of, you know, shootouts or car chases, that kind of thing. Le Carre has so much subtlety and he is very emotionally attuned, I would say, to the inner lives of his characters. Now, of course, his characters are mostly men, so that emotional attunement mostly gets uh, practiced on men. Um, so I think he is very much a male writer. I don't know if he would be at the outermost extreme. That might belong more towards more to a sort of typical um, pulse-pounding thriller writer, as you might say. But I do think it's really interesting, and it was a theme that certainly came out in the Pigeon Touch, the Pigeon Tunnel, both the documentary and then the memoir from some years ago, which is Le Carre's complicated relationship with women. And if you wanted to be Freudian about it, you could certainly trace that back to the fact that his mother left when he was quite young. And I imagine it was you know, perhaps challenging to form those really deep lasting relationships with women in his life for whatever reason, probably for a variety of reasons. But I was recently listening to an interview with Le Carre's biographer, Adam Sisman, who wrote that biography of him several years ago. And recently, since Le Carre passed, Sisman wrote a shorter book called The Secret Lives of John mm. Le Carre. I think that's, I haven't read it yet, but I want to after listening to this. Yeah, interview. I, I read about that. Um, I read about that book suggesting that he behaved with all his female lovers uh, like a spy and he would yes. have secret mm -hmm. meetings and it would all be arranged. And he walked out on his first wife and he, he has, he certainly liked the ladies. There was no doubt about that. He liked the ladies, but it does seem that it was. Um, and the ladies liked him. I think. He oh, was yes. Understand why? I mean, in the, in the yeah. documentary, he's incredibly charming. He um, he has this this kind of warmth and this um, kind of winking quality to him. Yeah, and he's also an incredibly nice man. I once bumped into him in an airport. He was signing mm. books in an airport in London, and um, we had a very nice chat. And I sent him one of my books, and he wrote me an extremely nice reply. I mean, he, he clearly was a gentleman. I mean, isn't that? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Although maybe if I'd been a girl, he might have behaved differently. Yeah. Yeah. Who knows? Hard to hard to you know know what the alternate might be, but I think that because his love life was so you know tumultuous in some ways that it does both it's reflective of his fiction, perhaps reflective of his own upbringing, his training as a spy, and then of course it bleeds back into the fiction. So. I think it's quite rare that you see like a happy uh, relationship between a man and a woman in one of his novels, um, or certainly one where the the love feels really solid. Yeah, and I mean the central character in all his books, George Smiley, is mm -hmm. the tragic marriage with Anne, who yep. runs around and has affairs with Tom Hayden, who was mm -hmm. uh, the. Uh, the Kim Philby of, uh, of the whole thing. So yeah, I mean, there's many F Freudian elements here. Um, we are speaking with um, Anna Pitoniak, the author of a wonderful new book, The Helsinki Affair, female-centric spy novel. Um, after the break, Anna, I want to talk more about the book itself. Uh, I want to thank um, Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics, who are helping 
bring this high quality content on Keenom. We're going to run a short uh, feature on liberties and then we'll be back with Anna Katoniak to talk more specifically about her new book, The Helsinki Affair. So don't go away, anyone. We're all spies. We're watching you. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties, it's not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can subscribe to Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. We are talking with Anna Pitoniak, the author of The Helsinki Affair, a new female-centric spy novel, literary spy novel. Anna, before the break, we were talking Le Carre, um, mm -hmm. the Pigeon Tunnel, and the, the movie and his biography, his autobiography and his life is haunted or uh, dominated in many ways by the relationship with his father, Mm -hmm. um, it was Ronnie Cornwall, a, a notorious con man who seems to haunt his son and, 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 the, and the whole literary canon. Um, your book also has a father in it, but it's a father-daughter relationship rather mm -hmm. than a father-son one. I don't want you to give everything away, but um, why did you choose to make the relationship between your female spy heroine and her father central to the narrative. Mm. So it was one of those choices that existed at the very inception of the book, the very beginning of the way I conceived of the story. And so it was very much baked into just the initial, um, the initial act of sitting down and starting to write this story. I always knew that I wanted Amanda Cole to be our our heroine, our protagonist. She's an ambitious young CIA officer who is very good at her job um, and is really sort of brave and fearless in many ways. But I knew that I wanted her to have to balance this ambition, this drive to, you know, pursue these mysteries and um, advocate on behalf of the CIA in America with this other conflicting loyalty within her, which is her relationship with her family and specifically her father. I think that maybe every spy carries some degree of conflict within them, which is, you know, you, you have to be someone who's pretty comfortable with shades of gray rather than just black and white, someone who's comfortable with a little bit of moral murkiness and moments where you have to do something you might not want to do because the ends justify the means. So I think spies are always wrestling with the work they're doing and then they're all also their own conscience. And for the character of Amanda, this is a very heightened form of wrestling because simultaneous with unwinding this Kremlin-backed Kremlin conspiracy that is being waged against America, she also have, has to grapple with what she's going to do, what she's going to reveal about her father's own past in the CIA. So I really loved the idea of Amanda 
learning from her father, being influenced by her father, being a lot like her father in many ways, um, in terms of her genes, in terms of her behavior, her draw to this kind of work, but also to have to wrestle with the ways in which she's different from her father and her loyalty to him may not be totally absolute. So I loved the chance to dive deeply into both of these characters and to also in so doing, spend time cutting back and forth between the present day and the Cold War, which is when her father, Charlie Cole, was serving for the CIA. There, you mentioned the Freudian elements of, of some of some some of the great writers of, of espionage. Certainly there's a, I don't know if it's a Freudian element or an Oedipal element here, the idea of a, a woman exposing her father as a liar and a spy. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a strong literary element there, isn't there, Anna? Mm -hmm. Yes, I think that there's a reason we see that pattern play out in so many stories, in novels, in plays, in films. It's a really fundamental uh, struggle that exists in all of humans, I think, um, not just in the literary space, but in, in real life, too. The need for the child to differentiate herself from the parent in some measure. Now, sometimes that's a fairly typical trajectory, a fairly ordinary thing. Sometimes it's very heightened and dramatic, such as the cases in the Helsinki affair. But I think the reason we see that thread tracing through so much literature is because it's something that everyone to some greater or lesser extent can probably relate to, which is how do I become my own person and um, become my own person free from what my parents might expect of me. Do you think you had to romanticize CIA and but Hansen, who was, um, uh, he wasn't a CIA spy, he was an FBI spy, but he was an incredibly ordinary in his background. Mm -hmm. You obviously did a lot of reading and research into real life spies in the American services. Was it grottier, grayer, more boring than perhaps a spy, a literary spy, a novelist like you would actually want? So you had to make it slightly more romantic. To be honest, yes. I think that the ordinary course of things, if you're a spy at the CIA or uh, the FBI or MI6 in Britain, is that the job involves quite a lot of bureaucracy and drudgery and just sort of ordinary office politics and dynamics. But this is the prerogative of the novelist. She gets to decide what to include mm. and what to leave out. Um, this was once a something that my boss said at Random House when I was working there as an editor. Um, a writer had turned in a novel in which it was it was very reflective of ordinary life, a very quiet kind of novel. And this writer was arguing, well, this is how it really is in real life. And my boss said, well, yes, but this is not real life. This is a novel. So it can be a little bit more exciting yeah. and collective. And I think that, of course, the, the goal with this kind of novel is to create a sort of heightened version of reality and to, you know, move the reader over, like skipping past the parts where nothing's really happening. Um, but 
this is also why I love writing fiction. And I think nonfiction would be a different kind of challenge for me because I get to use my imagination and think about the parts of the job of being a spy that are really um, interesting and challenging and dynamic and sort of cinematic in nature. So I very much embrace my ability to take fictional license with things. In other words, it allows you to lie. Yes, yes. And you probably would have made a good spy. I bet you've thought about that too. I, you know, I, I have thought about it. I think the fact that I am so overtly interested in spying and I've you know, gone around talking about how fascinating I find it would probably mean that I, I wouldn't be able to blend in so well at this point. People would look at me and be like, well, she's a woman who writes spy fiction, so we should probably, you know, flag her in our system. But I do think that the spy and the novelist have a lot in common in terms of their inherent curiosity about human nature, their ability to hold, you know, competing ideas in their head and maybe suspend conventional notions of right and wrong. Because I think when you're writing a novel and you're writing um, the protagonists, the sort of good guys, quote unquote, and then also their opponents, you know, the villains, quote unquote, you really, as the novelist, need to be able to humanize all of those characters. Otherwise, the book just becomes kind of flat and cliched. And you have to be able to invest humanity into any kind of character, no matter how challenging um, or unsavory they might be. And I think that comfort with a wide range of human behavior and human morality is certainly something that a spy needs as well. Uh, Anna, um, the, there's a generational quality to the, the narrative. The father who's the spy, the daughter who is the, the good spy, or maybe the father's the bad mm -hmm. spy. Um, do you think there's a, a nostalgic quality to looking back at the history of espionage in the Cold War? I mean, there were romantic. Not everybody was, um, not everybody was as boring and mundane and suburban as uh, as Robert Hansen. Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, in the, um, in the in the Morris Pigeon Tunnel, they spent quite a lot of time talking about Kim Philby. I mean, mm -hmm. he was. He was evil, but he was a remarkable man, enormously romantic. His father was an influential figure in the Middle East. So Philby was a romantic figure that got away with it. Were there, do you, th do you think you look back at the, the a, a previous generation to find a little bit more color and romance? I do think that there is a certain kind of color and romance to looking back on, you know, the spies of the Cold War or the spies of World War II, for that matter. I think part of that is just our inherent tendency towards nostalgia and thinking that, oh, well, before technology took over, where it was more face-to-face, -face, more humans interacting with one another, you know, it was more interesting, it was more dynamic. And I will freely admit that I am more interested in the kind of human intelligence aspect which is, you know, uh, someone recruiting an agent um, to spy for them rather than signals intelligence, which is more interception of data, um, you know, hacking into someone's computer. I think some writers handle that element very well. That's just less interesting to me. And so there is a, a sort of romantic quality to setting stories in the past when it was much more human intelligence and less of that signals intelligence. Um, but I also think, and I always try to hold this in mind when I when I think about the past, whether it's the Cold War or World War II, 
which is that maybe we tend to romanticize those periods because we in the present day know how those conflicts ended. So we mm. know that at the end of the day, you know, America sort of came out on top and the USSR dissolved. We know that in World War II, you know, the good guys won and Germany was defeated. But the people who are actually living in the moment to moment, they don't necessarily know that the war is going to end in 1945 or 1991. They're just in it. They're in that grinding conflict and that fear. Um, so that's something that I think is often a challenge. How do you capture an era in the past and, you know, make it an exciting narrative, a compelling narrative, but also capture the way that a character or a person would have really felt in that moment, which is, my God, how long is this thing going to go on? Am I going to be living in this state of fear or deprivation or anxiety forever? Um, I think that we often have the tendency to gloss things with a rosy nostalgia looking back because we know that it essentially ended up okay. Yeah, I actually, I, I'm not sure I agree with you on that front, Anna. Mm -hmm. It's increasingly clear or confusing to us that the Second World War actually has or hasn't ended. We've done shows on mm -hmm. that or in Ukraine. It's not clear that the U.S. won the Cold War mm -hmm. given given Putin's Russia. So it's a little fuzzier than it might seem. I wonder in your book, I mean, what what the great legacy, I think, of and the most radical aspect of Le Carre's work is he did away with good and evil in, in mm -hmm. the Cold War in, in, in the difference between the West and, and the Russians. And, and everybody was as good or as evil as, as, as the next one, mm -hmm. uh, whether they were control in London or in, in Moscow. Is there good and evil in the Helsinki affair? Wow, that's a that's a rich question. I think that it's sort of two things at once. I think that there is, and I've been thinking a lot about the differences between um, sort of ethical concepts of good and evil versus moral concepts of good and evil. I think that the the moral question of is someone a good person or a bad person, like at their very core. Um, like deeper than however they behave in a given situation. I think that's very difficult to answer. And I don't know that I, I have an answer to that, like whether a person is inherently good or inherently bad. But I do think that when you look more specifically at a given situation, which is, let's say there's, there's an ethical code that exists between people or between countries, um, there are laws and when laws get broken, um, those things have to be sort of evaluated and judged and handled in certain ways. So I think that there are certain people, certainly characters and people and instances in the Helsinki affair where someone is doing the right thing in a specific situation, which is, you know, maybe sparing a human life or um, telling the truth or whatever it might be. And I feel comfortable saying that those are, you know, good actions to take in a specific situation, but as to whether that telescopes out to a broad sweeping notion of that person is a good person or that person is a bad person. I don't know that I feel comfortable saying that because I don't know that people are necessarily, um, that, we, that we can know about that um, in our fairly limited view of humankind. Now, there are probably many philosophical rebuttals to this like you know is someone like hitler inherently bad probably yes i mean certainly yes but 
that's a that's a really challenging concept when you also you know absorb the Le Carre mindset of like is everything fungible is everything shades of gray um it's really difficult I certainly don't have the answer to those questions and finally Anna what better place than to title and perhaps set a story than Helsinki Mm -hmm. uh, your book is called The Helsinki Affair. It's one of my favorite places. Uh, it's always, maybe this is a rather unkind way of describing it. But what I love about Helsinki is it's Russia without the Russians. Yes, I think that's a, I think that's a very, uh, a very accurate statement. And one thing I was immediately struck by when we traveled, we were traveling in late 2019, um, my husband and I, we spent a little bit of time in Russia and then stopped in Helsinki on our way back to New York. And it was so striking to me taking off from the airport in St. Petersburg where everything was fairly chaotic and dysfunctional and you know loud and messy. And then landing a mere 30 minutes, 45 minutes later in the Helsinki airport, which couldn't have been more different like you were suddenly back in Europe, everything was extremely, you know, clean and bright and efficient, and people were almost bafflingly kind to you. Um, it was so striking to me that these two countries can exist side by side, you know, they share a border, they're very close. And yet, the the people, the culture, um, the society is, is very different on each side of that border. Well, it's great you started this series. Uh, Kirk has said, uh deserves it they love the book uh, deserves a series you're working on the next one yet i am working on the next one and uh some of the characters from the helsinki affair especially amanda cole and kath frost who are the two women at the center of the yeah carcass loved kath frost yes she was i love writing her too she was a ton of fun to write so they are making an appearance in the next book and i'm having a lot of fun um spending more time with them